John chapter 1 verse 5 to chapter 2 verse 2. It's page 1225. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, so next reading from um, Psalm 32. I don't have a page number, so I'll just call it out. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is is in no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped, as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Peter's going to come and speak to us now. Um, apparently, Johnny thinks that the only things worth noting about Peter are that he's originally from Tipperary. He now lives in Cork um, as a monster staff worker with ISIS, and he's married to Maeve. Um, but I'd like to add that Peter's so much more than all of those things. He's also um, a Tipperary man, but he's probably quite nervous about today's match. Against Waterford, or is it in the bag? Um, you can come here in the bag as well. Anyway, thanks for thanks for me sharing.
Good morning, everybody. Yep, um, as rightly noted, my name is Peter, originally from Feathered in County Tipperary, which is a very important point. Uh, married to the beautiful May for uh, a year and a month and a bit. Um, yeah, so we're looking at Psalm 32 this morning. I was thinking as we were standing up and sitting down earlier on, it's interesting how our body language can uh, just display something of what we're thinking or what we're feeling in our hearts. Um, and I think for this psalm, um, probably initially the body language is certainly one of kneeling um, and then it goes on to one of standing or rejoicing. I'm not going to ask you to kneel. I know some of you have babies in your hands and things like that, so uh, that wouldn't be appropriate. Um, yeah, I'd just like to ask as well, does, does everybody know who Tiger Woods is vaguely? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, in 1996, Earl Woods, who is Tiger Woods' dad, said of his 21-year-old son, listen to this now, Tiger will do more than any other man in history to change the course of humanity. When I found that quote, I was just like, wow, this is gold for sermon material. It didn't take so, it it takes so long to read, actually, though, through all of Tiger's uh, achievements on and off the golf course, um, that I had to cut it out. It would take just too long to read through it all. So you begin to wonder if his dad's prophecy is coming through to a certain extent. Um, he is an amazing golfer, probably the best of all time, and through the likes of his Tiger Woods Foundation, uh, he raises a huge amount of money for charity. He's married to Ellen, who is a, a former Swedish model with whom he has two children. However, in recent times, you may have heard that Tiger has admitted to having a string of extramarital affairs, uh, offering the following reasoning. I convinced myself that normal rules didn't apply. I thought only about myself. I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to. I felt I was entitled. I suppose it's easy um, to look at Tiger, um, to look at others and judge them, but the truth of the matter is that we've all been there, haven't we? We may not be the most successful sportsmen in history, even though sometimes at Thursday night soccer, as I rack up goal after goal, I just wonder. Uh, we may not be all um, part of multi-million pound sponsorship deals. Um, we may not have had uh, affairs outside of marriage, but we've all been there. We've either done things that would have shocked us in clear conscience, or we've not done things that we should have done. And then even when we do things right, we get all proud about ourselves and think that we're great. Like Tiger, we've covered our sins in the hope they wouldn't be uncovered. We've kept silent and not confessed our transgressions. Like Tiger, we all know what it's like when we've had a spirit of deceit, when we've been trying to fool ourselves and others. What Tiger has done is extremely serious. Many of the companies sponsoring Tiger have either suspended or cancelled their support of him altogether, resulting in the value of the companies falling. Um, one economics professor estimates that the loss caused to companies because of what Tiger has done is between 5 and 12 billion US dollars. When you consider that the, the outfall or the fallout of the Icelandic um, ash cloud was, I think, something between 1 and 3 billion dollars, it kind of puts it in perspective. Um, but far more serious than the, the financial cost is the emotional, mental and spiritual cost that has been accumulated and will continue, which someone will have to pay for. So he's caused this huge um, cost to be put on his family, on his wife. 
Imagine if he came home one day and his wife Ellen said to him, Tiger, I know exactly what you've done, but never again will I bring up your transgressions to hurt you or make you feel guilty or remind you. It's at huge cost to myself, but I forgive you. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be incredible? If Tiger were to read the opening verses of Psalm 32, he would come across a mouth-watering prospect that David sets before us this morning. A person there in verse 1 whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose sin the Lord does not count against them in verse 2, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. These two verses, they're like a headline over the psalm, and a headline that's far more interesting than anything written in recent times in the tabloids or the broadsheets about Tiger. How extraordinary it would be if Ellen forgives Tiger. How much more so if God, who is perfectly holy, forgives us. How could this be? Well, as we've mentioned, David writes verse 1 and 2 as a kind of a headline which grabs our attention. But in verses 3 to 5, he brings us back in time to understand how verses 1 and 2 came about. We shall see something of how David got to this point and how, if at all, we can share in the same experience of forgiveness. I don't know if, uh, like me, you enjoy watching wildlife documentaries on TV, um, as Mae will tell you. And sometimes what they'll do, especially in the good quality BBC ones, is that they'll have uh, an image of a desert, for example, and they'll have it speeded up. So the video will be taken over months uh, of time, and they'll have this picture of this dead, dull, dry desert. Um, And just as the rain starts to come in, the desert uh, bursts into life, so it becomes full of life, full of water, rich green grass. Um, And the whole scene is amazing, really. It's just a total transformation. Well, it's like the total opposite here in verse 4. David's strength was sapped as if in the heat of the hottest summer. And we're left wondering, has he taken a vow of silence in verse 3? When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. But it seems there's something much more sinister going on as we look at the results of his silence. It's as if the spiritual air pressure is high while David was silent. You can see there in verse 4, God's hand was heavy upon him, resulting in the groaning of verse 3, his bones wasting away, and his vitality or his strength being sapped, as it says in verse 4. Well, if verses 3 and 4 describe the drought of summer, verse 5 is surely the first sign of much-needed rain. We'd already seen how blessed is the man in whom spirit is no deceit, And here in verse 5, David is explaining what it looks like when he stops trying to fool or to deceive God. Because self-deception, I suppose, by its very nature, is difficult to see in our lives. It obviously means that we're deceiving ourselves. I think it would be good to spend uh, just a little bit of time thinking about David's way out of the trap of self-deception. And there are four things briefly worth noticing. Firstly, you'll see that David owns up to his sin in verse 5. I acknowledged, I did not cover, I said, I will confess. So the onus was on David. He doesn't blame other people, he doesn't blame his circumstances, he doesn't blame God. Even though he had great opportunity 
as king to pawn off responsibility to others. He doesn't do that here, and he also doesn't pretend that it isn't that big a deal. So secondly, he doesn't water down the seriousness of what he has done. It's thought that this psalm is part of David's reflection on the sins of his scandalous affair with Bathsheba. But he doesn't dilute it. He doesn't pretend that it isn't that bad. He calls it like it is. He calls sin, sin. Thirdly, he realises that it's primarily against God that he has sinned. So this, this whole verse here, David is talking to God. He's communicating with God, with the Lord. And fourthly, there's a serious intentionality to what David does in verse 5. You can see it in the language, I said I will confess. So he makes up his mind to do this. And I think I really think those four uh, things are a good pattern for us to learn, to get out of this trap that we so often fall into of self-deception. Firstly, to own up to our sin. Secondly, to not water down how serious it is. Thirdly, to realise that, that it's against God who is holy, that we've primarily sinned. And fourthly, to be intentional, to make a decision and follow through on the confession no matter what. So in very stark contrast to the hiding and the cover-ups of verse 3 and 4, David here acknowledges his sin to God. He doesn't hide his iniquity and he says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Now the tiger has confessed, um, his wife Ellen, to put it mildly, uh, can withdraw her love from him. She can pour out her anger on him. She can take his fortune and his children and she can sell her story to the media if she likes. Or she can forgive him. She can bear the cost of that forgiveness herself. You see, the person we have offended, the person to whom we confess our sins, has the right and the ability to become our saviour or our destroyer so they can accept or reject our confession. It's a bit unnerving when you think about it. Not that I'm taking pity on politicians, uh, but it's no wonder in the doll when politicians have to be before the opposition parties and they're sometimes so reluctant to admit that they were wrong. It's no wonder as children before our parents how we always blamed our siblings and didn't admit our own wrongdoing. It's no wonder breaths, I'm sure, were held as Tiger finally admitted to his transgressions. How will the offended party react? What will they say? What will they do? In the case at hand in this psalm here, with David and God, it's even more tense because we know God to be holy and totally opposed to sin. It's God's hand which is heavy upon David back in verse 4. God is already showing his holy opposition to sin by sapping David's strength, by David's bones wasting away, etc. And so we wonder, if David confesses sin, <coughs> excuse me, if David confesses sin, surely God will destroy him altogether, will withdraw his love, will pour out his anger, destroy David altogether. What's been going on up to this point is that David has been trying to bear the cost of the particular sins in view. 
It is by those same means. So what we see back in verses 3 and 4, it's by those means that God has been pressing David to confess, to come clean with God so that he would be forgiven. Or in other words, so that God himself might bear the cost of David's sin, rather than David being destroyed by trying to bear the cost himself. Well, how does God bear the cost of David's sin, we might ask? And the simple answer is that God bears the cost of David's sin in the cross of Christ. God the Son becomes man so that, we might, so that he might associate with mankind, with David. <coughs> he willingly lays down his life for David on the cross as God the Father pours out the wrath that David deserved on God the Son. Jesus' bones wasted away because of David's sin. Jesus groaned because of David's sin. God's hand was heavy upon Jesus and his strength was sapped to the point of death for David's sin. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin. Or in this case, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for David so that in Jesus, David might become the righteousness of God. So rather than withdrawing his love for David and pouring out his anger on him, God, Father, Son and Spirit shows his love for David by diverting his anger to Jesus on the cross, who laid down his life for David. God bears the cost as the Father gives up his only Son, as the Son becomes man and dies the death of a criminal, as the Son bears the outpouring of the Father's wrath, and the love of the Father is withdrawn from him. It's for that reason, and that reason alone, that the beautiful words at the end of verse 5 are true. God forgave the guilt of David's sin. As Augustine said, the word is scarcely in his mouth before the wound is healed. You see, David has realised how unnecessary it is for him to be experiencing the things of verse 3 and 4. Because Jesus has already experienced those things fully to their limit and in their most awful sense on the cross. And so David and us and we are brought back to the happy man of verses 1 and 2. When David stopped trying to cover up his sin, God really covers it up through Christ. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Oh, is that embarrassing moment when the priest takes a sip of water. As we've been reading this morning, the question naturally arises, how much do we relate to David here? How much much should we relate to it? Well, David gives us an amazing answer in verse 6. He says, therefore, or in other words, because of the reasons I've just outlined, let everyone who is godly pray to you, or pray to God, while he may be found. Did David have saving faith prior to the experience of this psalm? I would say he did. What he's reminded of in this psalm, though, as we need to be reminded, 
is that this honest confession of sin is something that's an ongoing part and parcel of life as a Christian. As we heard already, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. While we're in this fallen world, the battle rages on. Sin still wields its power. The battle rages on. There's a warning from David in verse 6. God is truly patient with us, but we shouldn't take this for granted. Perhaps this morning there's something in our lives, in our minds even, that's eating us up, that's wasting our bones, and we're avoiding God. Sometimes it's easy to be in the midst of Sunday morning worship and to be totally avoiding God. I've been there myself. This psalm warns us that in a flood of great waters we shall not come near him. In other words, there will come a time when it will be too late when we have covered it up too often and for too long. We should realise that not only will this prayer be often on our lips as Christians, but with great urgency as well, in a time when God may be found. But also be encouraged, we should be encouraged by our merciful God that presses us to be honest with him and not cover this matter. For the Christian, the cross of Christ plunges deeper than the depths of our sins. And surely the delight that we will see in the following verses should inspire us to come clean with God and not to cover our sins. The joy we see in verse 7, it's a most delicious, a most immediate thing for the Christian who has, like David said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. God who before was pressing down on us, becomes our hiding place, becomes the one who will preserve us from trouble, the one who will surround us with songs of deliverance. We're told in the book of Revelation that people will hide themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and will say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It is true that we need a hiding place from God's wrath. But the question is, are we hiding in God or trying to hide outside of God this morning? Are we desperately trying to preserve ourselves or are we, like David, saying that the author of life will preserve us? Are we surrounding ourselves with deception and defense and denial or are we allowing the Almighty Lord of creation to surround us with songs of deliverance? As Tiger made his apology in front of the world media, one very astute journalist made the observation that we felt Tiger, would, he wouldn't have been there if he hadn't been caught, that a tiger doesn't change his stripes. We shouldn't be like the horse or the mule of verse 9, or the tiger, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, as they will not come near God. God, out of his love for us, will be heavy-handed with us, if needs be, if we are like David, or like the horse or the mule of verse 9. But that is not his preferred way of relating to us. Even as we dwell on the example of David this morning, God, as he promises in verse 8, is instructing us 
and teaching us in the way we should go. He is counselling us and watching over us. What sweet truth this psalm contains. Verse 10 and 11 say, Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Father God, we thank you so much for your plan of salvation. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for um, how wonderful, how perfect, and how amazing what you have done is. And Lord, we pray that, like David, we would realize quickly, um, or even more quickly, Lord, when we are not coming clean with you. And Lord, that we would know that the cross of Christ, what Jesus has done, is not just, Lord, for our conversion experience, Lord, but that we should live in the shadow of the cross day by day, Lord. We thank you for these wonderful truths, and we pray, Lord, that they would be sinking deep into our minds, into our hearts, into our actions, Lord, that throughout the week we may live out of the truth of your word rather than out of the deception of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Our final uh, closing in this number 793, uh, where am I going to